be beginning a new series. I'm super excited about reflecting on Jonah and seeing where this study takes us. It'll be a, a four-week series. We'll start today, um, go for the next three weeks, and then we'll begin our series. Uh, Advent begins the last Sunday of November, so we'll begin a Christmas series there, and we'll be going through the uh, probably the Gospel of Matthew and reflecting on the birth and, uh, and the events surrounding the birth of Christ our Messiah. So as you're turning to, to Jonah, <clears throat> you'll notice in your bulletin, this was my fault, but if, uh, if you see the title is Following God Where We Don't Want to God. It's supposed to be Following God Where We Don't Want to Go, not Following God Where We Don't Want to God. But we'll be reflecting on, you know, what do we do when God leads us to a place that we don't want to go? God says, go here, and we say, but God, I don't want to go there. I want to go somewhere else. What do we do? What does Jonah do? That's what we'll see this morning in Jonah chapter 1. So we'll be beginning this new series, a look inside this epic story. So I've got a question before we read through uh, the scripture. I've got a question. What, uh, what happens when God calls you to do something that you don't want to do? Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me, and I can tell you what my initial reaction is. My gut instinct is to run, to run away, to go do what I want to do instead of sitting and waiting and following the Lord. But I can tell you through experience that does not work very well. I don't know if you guys have ever tried this or if you've been impacted by this, but there's a couple of slides I think that encapsulate the dangers of running from God and what we sometimes get ourselves into. So this next slide, here we go. Um, uh, I love this, not loving it, right? God shows up and says, all right, I've got something wonderful and glorious for you, like a Happy Meal to a kid, but you see, no, 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 not loving it, don't want that. What about this next one? Sometimes I run from God and it takes me into situations that are troublesome. I don't know how this happened. Uh, what it says is that is what happens when you run away from me. You know, when, when we run from God, a lot of times it gets us in more trouble. It gets us in worse places and positions than we would have been if we would have just obeyed God and followed Him and gone where He asked us to go. Next slide. Uh, this one makes me think of Sergeant Harvickson. Many of you know Harvey. He's, uh, he's left us now. He's on his way back to the States. He loves elk. He loves everything out where he wants to be, like a forest ranger and stuff. And, and so this is my vision of him in 10 years. Um, Stop running. I love you. Don't you love that caption? Come here. Let me smother you with hugs. No. God's telling us, come here. Come to me. Follow me. I love you. I've got an amazing plan for you. It's going to work out. It's going to be for your blessing. It's going to be for your benefit. And how do we respond? Woo, see ya. I mean, look at, I mean, that's good form. For like a park ranger? I mean, sign that guy up. He needs to play for, uh, for my Clemson Tigers, <clears throat> who are still undefeated. But anyway, we'll back to, back to running from God, back to running from God. What do we do when, when God calls us to go to places? Well, I think as we work our way through Jonah chapter 1, we're going to see some amazing, amazing things. First, we're going to see the necessity of obedience. It is vital that we are obedient as believers, we're going to see the beauty of repentance as we work through this book. It's going to be gorgeous. And then we're going to see the danger of pride. What happens when we harden ourselves against God, against His plan, against His purpose? We're going to see the importance of missions. 
seeing God's gospel go out throughout the world. We're going to see the relentless love of God, a love that is tenacious, a love that is possessive, a love that pursues and subdues to his will. It's amazing. We're going to see that God loves us, that he delights to love sinners. And as we reflect on our love for God, we're going to see that we love him because he first loved us. I hope it'll be an amazing journey for you and for all of us as we work our way through Jonah uh, over the course of the next four weeks. But uh, we got to get through chapter one. Chapter one's big and huge. I've done series on Jonah before. I've done Jonah chapter one in five weeks. We're going to condense all this into one week. I see everybody's eyeballs getting big. So we started out with some funnies. No more illustrations. No more stories. We're just going verse by verse. And we're going to dig out some marrow here that hopefully will encourage you in your walk with the Lord. We're going to see first and foremost in the first six verses, we're going to see disobedience. And then in verses 7 through 16, we're going to see judgment. And then in verse 17, we're going to see mercy. We're going to see Jonah's disobedience, we're going to see God's judgment, and we're going to see a divine mercy. And so let's jump in and go verse by verse. First, disobedience, verses 1 through 6. Read along with me. This is God's holy and inspired word, His only rule for faith and practice. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before, from before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. <laughs> But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest so that the sea, uh, on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. And then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean? O sleeper, arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Well, we'll pause there for now. We don't want to get too far ahead in this story. But disobedience. So what do we notice from these first six verses? I love verse 1, how it begins. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. A quick little bit of history. We learn from 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, that Jonah was from Galilee, that he was a prophet under the reign of Jeroboam II, and that he was a prophet in Israel around 750 B.C. So this was a long time ago. This is way back. You remember the, the, the kingdom and the rule of King David? Then King Solomon, his son, after Solomon's reign, things began to dwindle and to decay for Israel. 931, there was this split between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. That united kingdom under David and Solomon is no more. You've got a divided kingdom. God would send some prophets to the southern region. He would send some prophets to the northern region. And Jonah was a prophet of the northern region. It was a time of decay and spiritual and moral decline 
in Israel. And so Jonah comes to, to influence and impact that at the decree of God. And I love how it says, and so the word of the Lord comes. It comes to Jonah, and it says Jonah is the son of Amittai. And I think, again, in, in the Hebrew culture, names are important. They communicate something about the character of someone. Anybody know what Jonah means? Dove. Anybody know what Amittai means? Loyal or faithful. And so I think it's setting us up, isn't it? Interesting that God's word, who does it come to? It comes to a prophet, a prophet who is God's faithful or loyal dove. And so we're kind of being set up, right, for something beautiful, some obedience, some responsiveness. God, his word comes to his faithful dove, his prophet. Surely there's going to be something amazing happen. And so we see this uh, context set up in verse 1. Then in verse 2, we see the word that God actually gives. What does he tell his prophet? He says, Arise, go up to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And so he's telling his prophet, Arise, get up. You're going to notice that arise is echoed later in these verses. But he says, Arise, go up to this city, Nineveh, this great city. You see, uh, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire during this time, and they were infamous for being ruthless and brutal. If If you just Google some of the things that they did, human sacrifices, they would torture their people. I mean, it was just cruel and just a barbaric rule and reign, a barbaric people. And so God comes to Jonah, and he says, I want you to go, and I want you to critique them. I want you to, what, how does it phrase it here? I want you to call out against them. So, so far, if we're tracking, we're like, okay, God's word comes to God's prophet. Okay, he's to go out and to call out against this sinful place. Okay, we're tracking. All right, everything's good. But then verse 3 jumps up. Verse 3, but Jonah rose. Notice it seems again that he's going to obey, right? Arise. And so what happened? He, he rose, but he doesn't rise in obedience. He rises in rebellion. Verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah runs. Look at Jonah. Okay, I want you to go to Nineveh. He goes, no way. I'm going the opposite direction. Next slide. Look at this. I want you to see. So, so he's right here at Gath Heifer, and he can go northeast this short trip to Nineveh, but instead of doing that, he goes west, about as far west as you can see on a map and is heading to Tarshish. He is fleeing the presence of the Lord. He is going as far away from God as he can, and he's going as fast as he can away from the Lord. Now he knows, he's a prophet of God. He knows he can't flee the presence of God. He's familiar with the Psalms that God is in the heavens above and the earth beneath. So what is it communicating here? He's trying to quit. He's trying to resign. He's saying, God, if you are calling me to go to Nineveh and to proclaim your gospel, I quit. I'm not going to do it. I refuse. We're going to find out why later on. I'll give you a little hint now. He doesn't want the Ninevites to be saved. He doesn't like the Ninevites. He hates the Ninevites. He doesn't believe that the Ninevites are worthy of salvation. 
He doesn't want to spend eternity with them in heaven. And so he knows that God is a forbearing, gracious, loving God, and that if he goes and proclaims the gospel, that God will likely have mercy and bring Nineveh to repentance and to salvation. And Jonah says, no. I know that's your plan. I know that's your purpose. But I refuse to be a part of it. Now, if you're like me, I'm scratching my head going, are you kidding me? Nowhere else in the Scripture does this ever happen. Nowhere else in all of recorded revelation does God come to a prophet and tell them to do something and they say, no thank you. That doesn't happen. And so we are at a place in Scripture that is shocking. We're in a place in Scripture that is unique. And so let's see what happens as we continue. Jonah arises. He flees from the, uh, from the presence of the Lord. He pays the fare. He goes on board. He, he's going away from the presence of the Lord. I want to pause here and just say, isn't it interesting that, that he seems to have open doors as he walks in disobedience and rebellion, right? I'm going to set my face against the Lord, so I walk down. There just happens to be a boat here. I just happen to have the correct change. I remembered my pounds instead of my dollars this, this morning, right? They happen to be going the right direction. Wow! God must be prospering my flight away from Him. No, 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 no. Don't be so fast. Just because things are easy doesn't mean that it has God's blessing. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator, says, the ready way is not always the right way. I like that. The ready way is not always the right way. And so as you wrestle with the Lord and as you're trying to discern His will, be sure sometimes open doors are God saying, yes, I want you to go through, but sometimes God will put a closed door there and tell you to break it down. Sometimes God will put an open door there and tell you not to walk through it. So be aware of God's dealings with His people. And so he continues on, and as we think about the sinfulness that Jonah embraces to himself, I think is something that connects with us as well, right? The sin that Jonah is wrestling with is the same one that confounds us today. Here's the question, are we going to trust God? Are we going to trust God that He knows what's best for our lives, that He knows what's best for the life of our family, that He knows what's best for the lives of other nations? Are we going to trust God? Are we going to obey even when we may not feel like it? I think a lot of times, Christians, we we look at obedience kind of like kids look at eating their vegetables. And I know it's not true of any children in this congregation because they love their vegetables and they're obedient and they eat whatever mommy and dad put in front of their plate. Great kiddos. But, you know, vegetables, you you eat them because you have to. They're good for you, but you you don't look forward to eating your vegetables, right? I mean, you see uh, Halloween, right? You don't see many houses, you know, knocking on the door, trick-or-treat. Oh, here's some broccoli. Here's some Brussels sprouts. Here's some cauliflower. You don't see that. Why? Kids don't like it, right? In the same way, I think sometimes we look at obedience like that. Well, I'll be as obedient as I have to be because I know it's good for me, but I don't look forward to it. I don't enjoy it. And so my encouragement to you, my encouragement to my own heart is that we would cultivate a positive joy 
in obeying God, that obeying God would bring us delight and enjoyment, that saying no to ourselves and yes to Him would actually be something that we look forward to, that we look for opportunities to die to ourselves and to live for Him. Oh, may God give us the grace to walk that path. And so Jonah gets on the boat, and he continues on. Let's pick up in verse 7. And so they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has fallen upon us. And so they cast lots, and the lots fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. Now you'll know this is important. You'll notice that in your translation, or at least in most translations, that will either be, that will either be Yahweh or Jehovah if you have an older Bible, or if you've got a newer translation, Lord will be in all caps. Is that true in y'all's translation, is Lord in all caps? The reason that's in all caps is because that's the covenant name of God. God has all kinds of different names that He gives Himself. If you go through the trouble of learning Hebrew and then forgetting it like I did, you know, He reveals Himself as Adonai, the one who hears. Hundreds of names of God. Here is Yahweh or uh, Jehovah, the covenant name of God, the name by which He reveals Himself to be, I am who I am. Who I am. Am I am who I am. That's who he describes himself or declares himself to be to Moses. But it's the covenant name. It's the Hebrew name of God, if that makes sense. In other words, the Assyrians and other nations would have a generic term for God. But when you said Yahweh, that meant you were talking about the God of the Hebrews. In a similar way, it would be like, I guess, in a, in a, in a pluralistic environment, you hear God all the time. But sometimes you hear somebody say, Jesus. And as soon as the J word is dropped, everybody knows who we're talking about, right? So it's almost like that. So when you see that, look at it in that light. Look at it in that way. It's the Hebrew God. And so he says, I am a Hebrew. I serve Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid. And they said to him, what is it that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of of the Lord because he had told them. So isn't this interesting as we continue on? He thinks he's gotten away. He thinks everything is safe. But suddenly there is this huge storm, this violent storm that comes. Just when Jonah thinks that he's gotten away from the Lord, he made it to the boat, he's on the boat, he paid his fare, he's en route, he thinks everything is okay. No, 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 no. Suddenly things aren't as you thought. I don't know if anybody's been on a TDY or something like that. You get on the plane, you take off, you think, oh, everything's going great. I remember I was going from Jordan back to the deed, and I was excited about getting back. We take off, we land. Turns out we're somewhere totally different. We're not where we're supposed to be. It's going to be another two days before I actually get to my destination. Just because you take off on the ship or in the plane does not mean that you're on your way to your destination. 
And so Jonah will be reminded of this. And so here we see, we'll jump back up into verse 4, but the Lord hurls this great wind upon the sea. I love the way he phrased that, hurls it. You know, God is active in doing this. It wasn't a happenstance. It wasn't a coincidence. God sent this storm. He, quote, unquote, hurled it. Mighty tempest. Notice the, the ship threatens to break up. I mean, this is a significant storm. They feel like this boat is going to come apart and they're all going to die. Notice what happens in verse 5. The mariners were afraid. Each cries out to his own God. They Notice God first hurls, and secondly, the mariners hurl. And we're talking about cargo and storms. Nobody, I know what y'all are thinking. So they hurl the cargo that was in the ship to lighten it. Now, now when, when people began to throw cargo off the ship, these mariners, that highlights the importance and the desperation of the event that they're facing, right? Why are they carrying this cargo? They're, they're mariners. This is, their, this is their money. This is their livelihood. This is how they make a living. So if they're throwing that, I mean, just imagine throwing out your savings, throwing out your Roth IRA, throwing out the kids' college education. That's what these guys are doing. You don't do that unless you believe that your life is in imminent danger. And these guys, these are men of the sea. This is their living. It's not like me going out there who knows nothing. They know what the ship is capable of. They know what they're capable of as sailors. And they're saying what we are facing is beyond us. What we are facing, we cannot handle. Toss everything overboard. And so they begin tossing everything overboard. Notice that they each cry out to their own God. Again, the pluralistic scenario. It's not just the military. It's all throughout the Middle East back then. Pluralism, right? Each one's crying out to their own gods. As they cry out to their gods, they're asking for help. Now, where is Jonah in the midst of this? Everybody's crying out. Everybody's freaking out. Everybody's afraid. Stuff's getting thrown out. Where's Jonah? He's asleep? Are you kidding me? The prophet of God, the one who is supposed to rise up and go preach it. He's in the, the belly of the boat and he's asleep. Isn't that amazing? He should be the one leading the charge and yet he's asleep. And so notice verse 6, it's the captain who comes down. The Gentile captain. Jonah doesn't want the gospel going to the Gentiles. He wants it to stay with Jerusalem and Israel, right? He don't want to go up and see the Ninevites saved. It's the Gentile captain who comes down and says to him, What do you mean, O sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God or your God will give a thought to us so that we may not perish. Now isn't that amazing? Isn't that Amazing, a divine irony that Jonah is fleeing from the Gentiles and the call to take the gospel to them, and he is here reproved by a Gentile ship captain. Isn't it interesting how crisis and turmoil leads us to the Lord? While the seas are calm, while the sun is shining, we don't hear anything about any of these mariners praying to the Lord. But suddenly, when there's this rampaging tempest, suddenly everybody's calling out to their gods. Suddenly they're waking Jonah up. Isn't it amazing? And isn't it frightening? And isn't it sad that often we re refuse to face spiritual truth until we're forced to do so at the loss of our physical lives? 
The captain spoke sharply, but better than he himself knows. What do you mean, O sleeper? What are you doing? And I just, by way of application, you know, I like to ask myself that question every once in a while. What are you doing? Are you walking in obedience? Are you walking in faithfulness? Are you walking in love for Christ and walking in obedience to Him? Or are you just trying to sleep down at the bottom of the boat and waiting for everything to to take care of itself and for all the dangers to slip by? May we not fall into the sin of spiritual slumber. May God awaken us and may we arise and follow Him. So they wake Him up. Verse 7, And they say to one another, Come, let's cast lots, so we know on whose account this evil has come upon us. We see this a lot in the New Testament. The practice kind of dies out in the Old Testament. I think now, you know, now that we have Scripture guiding us and the Holy Spirit, we don't need to cast lots, although you'll see some Christians do that even today. Come, let's cast lots. And the lot, isn't it interesting, the lot falls on Jonah. And as the light falls upon him, verse 8, Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And then we see his confession in verse 9. He said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, again, Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now that's important because as they were worshiping their gods, they were worshiping, many people believe, if if it was consistent with uh, kind of the, the religious worship of the day, they were worshiping the gods of the sea, right? Because they're mariners. Their life is about the sea. And so they are praying to the God of the sea. And then they ask Jonah, which God do you serve? Notice how Jonah responds. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So he's saying, I worship the God who owns and controls everything. Not just the sea, but the heaven and the land and everything that you can see. And what's their reaction to that? Notice in verse 10, Then the men were exceedingly afraid. Emphasized in Hebrew. They're scared to death. They're like, oh my gosh, who is this guy? Why did he bring this mean God into our our presence, and what are we going to do now? We are in some serious trouble. He maintains not just the oceans, but the heavens and the earth as well. And so they talk to him. They say, what have you done? What kind of curse have you brought upon us, they're saying? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. And so then they say to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. I love that word. Isn't that a great word? I might use that, you know. Somebody asked me, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, but my precious bride and lovely wife Summer is growing more and more tempestuous. I would never say that. I'm telling you, I wouldn't say that, honey. Isn't that, but but that's, a, that's a violent word, isn't it? I mean, you think about a storm. I mean, growing more and more tempestuous. That would scare me to death. And so he says to them, Notice what he said. This is amazing, the prophet. He says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Now notice God has hurled. The mariners have hurled. Now he's saying, I want you to hurl me into the sea. If you do that, the sea will quieten down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And so he tells them straight up. He says, your salvation is my condemnation. 
If you want to live, toss me overboard. Now I ask you this question, what would your response be? I mean, I don't even know if he would have got the whole thing out of his mouth before I'm tossing him out of the boat. You know, that's me. That's just me. But look, look at these mariners. I mean, these are great guys, right? I mean, they're not the people of God. They're Gentiles. As far as we know, they're not converted yet at this point. But what do they do in response to this? Look, verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more. Here it is again, tempestuous against them. Isn't that great, though? They're trying to save this wayward prophet. And yet it shows, doesn't it, the vanity of human effort and endeavor if you're rowing against the will of the Lord. You can work as hard as you want to work. You can do all that you want to do. But if you're rowing against the storm of the Lord, it's going to be vain. It's going to be futile. You're just going to wind up exhausted. That's it. You're going to wind up exhausted. They row and they row and they row, but it doesn't help. And then verse 14, Therefore they called out to who? To the Lord. Now notice again there, it's all caps. They call out to Yahweh, to the Hebrew God. And they call out to Yahweh, the Hebrew God. And they say, Oh Lord, they call Him by His covenantal name. They're using His first name. They say, Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, Yahweh, have done as it has pleased you. What an amazing prayer. Talking about innocent blood, what does that remind you of? And the new covenant reminds you of Christ, does it not? He who shed His innocent blood for the salvation of sinners. And in verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and immediately the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly. Notice, not just some unnamed God, not just some generic God, but it says they feared Yahweh exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to who? To Yahweh and made vows. And I think it's interesting how, how that's emphasized. And you see the covenant name mentioned three times in one verse. And I believe, interpret it how you will, but I believe that through this event, God saved the mariners. And so the, again, the divine irony, here you have Jonah running away from the Lord because he doesn't want to see Gentiles saved. And through exposure to Jonah, you have the Gentiles on this ship saved. I just think that's beautiful. God is saying, you quit. God is saying, you're rendering your resignation. God is saying, you say no and I say yes. Let's see who wins. Guess what? Your disobedience is going to be the salvation for everybody on this ship. Isn't that amazing? God delights to save sinners. And then we see in verse 17, Jonah's tossed overboard, and the Lord, again Yahweh, and Yahweh appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Again, an illustration uh, of the tomb and the grave. And again, it's just it's something powerful, it's something profound. Is something amazing. Again, I, I hinted at it, but I do want to read it. Turn with me to chapter 4. 
I want to read just a couple of these verses to highlight Jonah's heart and where he is in the midst of this. It's not on the glory of God's salvation, sadly. Notice verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He knew that God would save the Ninevites. And he didn't want the Ninevites to be saved. And so, he rebels. He sets his will against the Lord. And he finds himself tossed overboard sinking to the bottom of the ocean and about to die when what happens? Marvelously, miraculously, this, shi- this fish appears out of nowhere and swallows him up. And I don't know about you guys, I remember hearing the story as a kid growing up, and I thought, man, that fish, that was judgment, right? That was punishment. No, no, no. The fish is actually the vehicle of salvation. If it weren't for the fish, he would have drowned. The fish swallows Jonah and allows him to live in the belly of this fish for the next three days as the Lord divinely transports him to the place that He called him in the first place, which is Nineveh. And so here, I mean, I I believe that this really happened. I believe there was this huge fish. I believe that He physically swallowed Jonah. I believe that Jonah lived in this fish for three days and three nights. And I believe that that was horrendous. I mean, can you imagine Living in a fish's gut for three days. I mean, you got air, which is what you need to live, but it couldn't have been pleasant air, right? It had to probably stink. I mean, you're living in a place that digests nasty seafood, right? Have y'all ever been around old, stale seafood? Ooh. So he's in this place. There's a lot of water probably around him, but he probably doesn't have a lot of drinking water, right? It's all like salt water. And so he's having to like live off mucus and stuff like that. I mean, that's disgusting. I don't want to gross people out too much. I mean, we're about to go to lunch. But, I mean, just imagine. Just imagine. Jonah, I mean, God says, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh. He could have, he could have jumped on a ship and gone to Nineveh, right? And he could have been chilling out, you know, sleeping on a hammock, have the wind blowing on his face, the beauty of the sun. He could have had, you know, eating nice meals. Having some grog, which is basically wine, having a sip of wine here or there. You know, he could have been living the high life, right? Or you can walk in disobedience and get transported in the gut of a fish for three days and night with no food and water, and it's dark, and it stinks, and it's miserable. God is looking at Jonah. He's looking at you and me, and he's saying, if I call you to do something, there are two choices. You can obey and walk in blessing, and obey my will, and accomplish my purpose, or you can disobey. But guess what? You're still going to accomplish my purpose. You're still going to be where I want you to be. You're still going to do what I want you to do, but you may just be miserable. Choice is yours. What do you want to do? At the end of this book, Jonah winds up in Nineveh. One way or another. Where is the Lord calling you? And how are you going to get there? Pray with me. Gracious Lord, we thank You so much for the truth that You've given us. We pray that You would help us to embrace it, to 
live a life of obedience to you, to live a life of trust in you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.